we're in this in this study, Crash Course Theology, this week. Last, or sorry, the first week, uh, Drew talked about theology in, in a, a, a kind of a basic introduction to it. And what we concluded was that theology is basically having thoughts about God and thinking about God. And in that sense, all of us are theologians, which is kind of a big thing to wrap your mind around if you haven't thought about that before, that all of us are theologians, that you are a theologian, you, you have thoughts about God, and so the challenge was to be a good one, <laughs> and what does it take to be a good one? You can go back and you can listen to that episode, it's on our, the, their, sorry, their, they have a podcast, table, the table has a podcast, and you can go check it out. Last week, uh, Rachel led us through this idea that uh, the Bible can be trustworthy, is trustworthy, and authoritative. Because it's, it's inspired, it's, it's God's revelation, we believe. We believe it's inspired, we believe it's inerrant, and in that it is true in everything that it teaches. Um, and so therefore it's trustworthy, and therefore it has authority. And so that's a big concept. And we're going we're gonna to kind of continue in that concept, because that's what makes, the, the authority of Scripture is what makes what I'm going to talk about so important. Um, and so... If the Bible is trustworthy, and if it is authoritative, then shouldn't we understand what it says? And that is where the challenge is, is understanding the Bible, because um, we need help with that. And so we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But, but first, pop quiz. How many of you like pop quizzes? Anybody like pop Yeah, because you don't have to study for it. It's like, well, I, I, it is what it is. I'm going to do it. Uh, can't, can't worry about it anymore. Unless you're failing, or like at a D and you're worried, yeah, then I get it. But there's no grades here. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through this list of New Testament commands, okay? And you have to put a U next to it, a C, a U, a U if it's universal, meaning it's, it's a commandment for all people at all times. A C if it's cultural, meaning it was only really meant for them at, in their time. Or an F. If it's figurative, meaning we're not really supposed to take it literal. It has, it has an implication. It has something to teach us, but we're not to take it literal. And so, <clears throat> don't say them out loud. Okay, just write your, write your letter next to each of these as I read them. Gouge your eyes out if it causes you to sin. That's in Matthew 5. Okay, C, U, or F. Um, when you fast, put, on oil, put oil on your head and wash your face. That's a command in the Bible. C, U, or F. Go make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey, obey Christ. That's Matthew 28. Wash one another's feet. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Universal, cultural, figurative. Abstain from sexual immorality. A man should not cover his head. It's literally what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 7. Wives should submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5. And then show humility by considering others better than yourself. That's Philippians 2. So, 
and I've done this before. I've done this in lots of groups, and and we don't have time to kind of go down each one and see who raised their hand and who this and that. What ends up happening is there are some where most everybody gets puts the same letter. There are some where most or a lot put the same number. Maybe a few don't, and then there are maybe a couple where it's kind of like all over the map. Um, but I want to ask specifically about six and seven. How many of you put a, a C next to abstain from food sacrificed to idols? Okay. How many of you put a U next to that? Okay, so that's probably that's usually the one that's kind of like half and half. How many of you put figurative? Anybody put figurative? Yeah. So, so not quite half and half, but a little more put cultural on that one. What about the next one? Abstain from sexual immorality. How many of you put cultural? Okay, and how many of you put universal? Okay, so all of you who put cultural on the first and universal on the second one, you recognize it's the same verse. So what you're, what you're doing in that moment is you're saying, Paul meant half of this verse just for them, but he meant the rest of this verse for everyone else. Or God meant half of this verse just for them and the rest of this verse. So I'm not here to give you the answers. I know it's going to drive some of you crazy. I'm not going to give you like all... like the answers to this. The point isn't who has the right answers. The point is all of us think we have the right answers. It, there, now, you might be like, oh, I don't know, I was unsure about that one. But if you have an opinion about it, you probably believe you have the right way of thinking about it, which is kind of interesting. So when you're reading Scripture, you're, you're doing this. You're, you're, you're doing it without even thinking. You're, you're processing like, is this really for me? Do I really need to listen to this? Do I not? Is this for them? Is this, or may, if you approach Scripture like all of it is for all people at all times, you will be insane. Probably by chapter two, I don't know, I don't know of, of the Gospels, I don't, or of the letter of the the, the uh, epistles. It it because it can get really weird. Um, gouge my eyes out? Like what? Okay, what what am I a part of now? You know, um, so there is. We're all kind of making these decisions. We're all interpreting. We're thinking about, like, what does this mean and how do I apply it? And, and, and I would imagine for you, at some point, if you've spent any time in the Word, you've, you've encountered this moment where you go, how do I know what this means? I remember, being your age, I came to Christ. Actually, I really kind of rededicated my life at 20. And that's when the light bulbs came on. That's when I really wanted to understand the Bible, and I was reading it, and I was listening to sermons, and I would, I remember having this moment, and it was kind of like, you know, I don't know if it was a critical moment, I don't know if it's just finally I came to reality, but I just remember sitting and listening to someone teach, and I just remember him thinking, how do I know he knows the right? Like, how how do I, how, why should I trust his interpretation of this? What does this mean? How am I supposed to know? How does anybody know what this means? Anybody ever have one of those moments? And. And so I took a class in college called Principles of Interpretation, taught by a Canadian named Jim Johnson. Who uh, It was his very first semester of teaching at Ozark, and I was in his first class of this, and it was my favorite class in all four years at Bible College because it answered that question for me, that we can actually understand what this means, that there is a way of, of understanding the Bible, of approaching the Bible um, to, to, get, to get as close as we can in, in interpretation of what's going on. And, and learning that process was incredibly um, freeing for me. 
and and which is why you know when we when I was here we taught the Bible in the way because we wanted to teach the Bible in the way that would help you understand how to how to study the Bible, and and so that's why we do it. So some people think this is kind of a debatable thing. Can you make the Bible say whatever you want it to say? Some people say, yeah, you can make it say whatever you want to say. Others say, no, you really can't make it say whatever you want it to say. It says what it says, and it's kind of up to us to figure out what it is. But, but there's this thing that happens in all of us. Two people can see the same thing and interpret. Two people can experience the same thing, and then, and then what goes on in their head, in between their ears, behind their eyes, is a process of thinking about it, and it can be influenced by a lot of things. So why? Why is it so difficult to interpret the Bible sometimes, and which goes to this first key uh, idea, is that our presupp- presuppositions or pre-understandings are shaped by several things. So if you were to, I'm going I'm to have you list out things that you think might shape our pre-understanding. So what kinds of things would you put on that list? Things that shape the way you understand the Bible. So when I say pre-understanding, what I'm saying is you come to the Bible you live in the 21st century. You're from America. Some of us. You, uh, <laughs> you, and so you have a perspective, and you you come with that perspective. You have the way you think about life, and you come to the Bible with a presupposition, with a pre-understanding. And so, what it, what influences that? Go. Okay. So you're the environment. You're the home you lived in. Your environment. The people you with. Yep, your community, which you could expand that to culture. It, it could be, you know, uh, Oklahoma or you know, America, obviously, or Western world. I mean, it 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 goes. What else? Okay, your 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 own experiences. Yep. So that, that could be things like cultural values, your own values, morals, how you think about money, how you think about success, um, social conditioning. So like, were you raised with, with a lot of money or not much money? Were you, were you raised in the city? Or were you raised in a rural farming area? If you were poor and raised in a farming community, you probably have, you're one step ahead in understanding the Bible probably than a lot of us. Because that's the culture in which they, like a rule, you know, farming, provide for yourself, that kind of environment. Uh, whether you're male or female can influence the way you come to the text. Uh, your political worldviews and social issues and whether you're conservative or lean liberal or um, your even intellectual ability, uh, that you know, Training that you've had in school, uh, education, can, uh, your emotional state. Um, are you in a sorrowful state? Are you excited? Are you feeling guilty? Are you? There's a lot of things that are going on that can kind of influence us as we come to the Bible, and and we need to kind of be aware of those things. So we all have these things that that um, that can lead us astray or cause us to read foreign ideas into the text. Um, but not all presuppositions are bad. So like you can have a presupposition, that, which I do, that the Bible is trustworthy and it has authority of my life. And so I approach the Bible that way. And that sometimes makes it difficult 
honestly, because <laughs> I got to su submit to this thing now. Um, but that can be a that can be a helpful presupposition that that God is good and that I can trust Him. That can be a helpful pre presupposition when I approach a text um, when I approach the Bible. So the next the next little point there is a big question. Who determines the meaning of this thing? Who gets to determine the meaning? So there are three, I list there, three entities. You have an author, you have a text, and you have a reader. Guess which one we are? The reader. We are the last one. And so there is a way of thinking, and, it, and, it's, and it's not just popular today. It's been popular since, I think, probably the beginning of time, um, but... We see it in lots of ways. So if someone says a statement, it doesn't matter what they actually said or meant, but their words harmed me. If someone says that, what they're, what they're saying is, their intent doesn't matter. I can interpret their intent however I want, and if I believe it's harmful, it's harmful. If their intent wasn't to harm me, but I believe it's harmful, then it's harmful. And, and, and that can be a slippery slope, in my opinion. Um, there can be sometimes some truth to that. Uh, I was thinking about this recently because I, I, I probably said harmful things when I was young a lot and didn't know. So, um, how many of you have heard of a Pollock joke? You, I know if you're older, if you're like in your 30s or older, you've anybody younger than their, in their 20s or younger, Ever heard of a Pollock joke? Wow. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome, first of all, because it's terrible. Um, so I, I grew up and I heard Pollock jokes all the time. Pollock would be Polish, right? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Pollock equaled dumb. That's, that's, so the jokes would go, a Pollock did this, blah, blah, blah. And it was always the assumption that... A, dumb person. And I probably said them and I heard them all the time. Okay? I didn't have the intent to harm Polish people, but I guarantee you, I don't know if I ever did, if I ever said a joke like that in front of someone who's from Poland, that would have been harmful. So I, I, I understand and believe that those kinds of things, even though my intent wasn't, it can still be harmful. It can still cause things, right? And, and those who are minorities and those who have experienced a multicultural, I mean, th those kinds of things can happen. I really do believe that. And then I also believe there can be a slippery slope with me getting to, to interpret anything however I want. And especially when we come to the Bible, if I get to determine what this thing means, then I really do believe I can make this, I can just pick and choose what I want and make, make it say whatever I want it to say. And, and, and truthfully, it doesn't have authority. So, what we want to do is we want the, um, let, me, let me jump back. The text is half, like, the text can't determine the meaning because it's really only half the story. There's just, it's just literary. There are some scholars who really act this way, that, that it's just ancient text, and we just interpret it, and it doesn't matter what was going on, it doesn't matter anything, we just interpret it for its literature and for its literary um, intrigue, but it doesn't really have a lot of meaning. So we want to we go back to the author, and we want to say the author 
gets to determine the meaning. So that phrase under there, author's intended meaning, that's really our goal when we interpret the Bible, is we want, we want to understand the author's intended meaning. Because we want to say, okay, this author wrote with specific things going on in a specific time, in a specific culture, and, um, and, and therefore we need to understand what was going on with them, what was going on with the audience, and then we can understand what they wrote, and we can study their language, and we can study the literary, all, all the things going on with that. So, authors attended meeting. The author has authority. This is another way of saying it. The author has authority. And the author, when, when I say author, I mean both uh, a person, and I also mean God, ultimately. And we'll talk a little more about that. So here's what John Stott says that, about the, the authority of Scripture. That if, sorry, we must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our com- complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. And that's John Stott's way of saying, we must approach this thing and let it have authority in our life. So that's why who you decide determines the meaning is such a big deal because it really can impact the way you think and the way you behave. So, here's some key terms. Uh, Hermeneutics is the theory and methodology of interpretation. Hermeneutics is the theory and methodology of interpretation. And so we're, we're going to, there's a couple ways, of, a few different ways in which this is described. One is the, the first blank there, historical grammatical method. Historical grammatical method. And you can probably imagine what that means. It is both historical and literature. It is, we want to study the history, we want to study the, the literary context. Another phrase that's often used is inductive method, like an inductive Bible study. You maybe have heard that. That's an investigative way of studying the Bible. It's letting the authors tell you what they meant, letting the facts influence your ideas, and discovering the truth that's already there. So it's instead of like, I have an idea, and then I'm going to find a verse to prove my idea. Um, that's, that's one way of, but we, when we study a text, we want to approach it like an investigator. Let's discover what's there. Let's find out what's going on. Another, another couple terms that you may have heard is exegesis or exegetical. Exegesis literally means to draw out, and so it's drawing out the meaning versus eisegesis. probably don't hear that one very often. Eisegesis is, is um, reading meaning into the text. That's, that's coming at it with your own set of ideas and beliefs and finding what you want. So... It takes humility to approach the Bible and say, I'm going to, I'm going to approach it and I'm going to let it, I'm going to let the evidence, I'm going to let the author, I'm going to let the text tell me what it means and I'm going to submit to it. So exegesis, exegetical, that's how we teach through the Bible is exegetical teaching. So the Bible is two things. The Bible uh, is two things, which is what makes it twice as difficult, I believe, to, to understand and to apply. The first thing requires work and effort to figure out. The second thing uh, can't be controlled, manipulated, or figured out. So the first one is the Bible is both is a historical book. The Bible is a historical book. It is, it is human. 
It, it was written by people going through s certain specific circumstances. Wrote, they wrote for a real purpose to a real audience, um, not you and me. The Bible was not written, in that sense, to you and me. And the sooner you can wrap your head around that, the better you'll be in, in, in interpreting it. So, because it's historical, because it's human, uh, we have to grow in the art of interpreting ancient literature. And so hermeneutics and interpreting ancient literature, that, that's something that if you were going to study any ancient text, you, could, you, you approach it with the same mentality and the same kind of investigative uh, mindset. And we're going to spend the majority of our time, most all of our time, talking about this uh, growing in this art of, of interpreting literature. But the other part is that it's also a spiritual book. It is divine. And, and so we believe that it is both human and divine. It is both historical and spiritual. And so because of that, uh, we have to grow in listening to God speak through us, through His Word, to us. So I put speak in parentheses because I don't mean audibly. I mean that there is this process of th words like surrender and words like discernment and words like obedience and words like wisdom that we have to grow in. And as we do that, it begins to transform us. And so this is where this book is unlike any other book that's ever been written. It is it is spiritual, it has a divine purpose, and it is alive and active. Um, the Bible says, Hebrews 4.12, the Bible is, it is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate soul and spirit, and divide joints and marrow, and things that are not easily divided, it says. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. What other book that can you read that can, that can judge you? I know judge is, a, is like a dirty word these days, but that can like examine you and, and say, hey, convict you. And so it has that ability, and that's, and that's the part that we can't control, manipulate, or figure out. We just place ourselves before and, and trust the Lord in. So we're gonna take, I want to take a little break. You're going to break up into groups of three or four. Try not to, be, try not to just pair up in two. Try, try to be in groups of three or four. And in the, the back bottom of the page, it has two questions, so discuss the first one, and it should be something like, uh, how have you been frustrated reading or interpreting the Bible? How do you know if your presuppositions are helpful or, or, or hurtful when interpreting the Bible? So spend a few minutes discussing that with three or four people around you. All right, so we will uh, we'll have a little more open discussion at the end, but I want to move forward. I remember being um, I remember being at Ozark Christian College. I, I was 20 years old. I kind of like I said, I recommitted my life to Christ, and I decided six months later to go to Bible college, just maybe for a year, just to learn more about the Bible and my faith. And I remember showing up on campus at this Christian college and going to chapel sitting in classes, hearing guys in the dorm talking, and it seemed like they had 
an understanding of the Bible, a knowledge of the Bible that I would never have. Like they were able to like just quote things out of the, out of the air. Like does, does that ever, for those of you who are maybe newer to studying the Bible, to reading the Bible, it's like when people just start quoting scripture, it's like, that's just, how do you know that? Like, yeah, I mean, I've read some stories. I knew some stories. I, how do you know verses though? And that blew my mind. And I thought I would never, I'll never learn this. It's so big. It's so complicated. And I remember the image I had in my mind, I don't know if you've ever thought like this, but I, I, they were all on the freeway flying by, and I'm like on a tricycle trying to keep up, you know? Like th- that's it, this idea that like I was so intimidated by studying the Bible that, um, that it really hindered my, cause, because I was intimidated, because I was insecure about it, I, I would just kind of put it off. And that's where this class really helped me gain some confidence to understand that I can, I can, I can actually, um, I can actually get pretty close to understanding what this thing means. And definitely with the help of a lot of other people, a lot of other, other resources. But this thing that I forgot to say at the beginning that I want to say is that you got to be willing to be bad at something in order to be good at something. You got to be willing to admit that you're not good at something in order to say, okay, I'm not good at that. I need to, I need to work on that no matter what it is. And, and some of you are really good at things that I'm terrible at. And, and some of you are getting trained in things in school that I will never know how to do. And, and, and so, but you started somewhere. Right? You, didn't, you don't start in Calc 3, you start somewhere else. And you work, you work up to things. And so studying the Bible is, is that way. And I say that because I want you to know, like, our heart in talking about this is for you to, like, go, okay, there are some principles that I can keep in mind that can really help guide me. And there, and, and there are some things that I can do to really help kind of help me understand this thing. And then, and then the other thing I'll talk about at the end is just growing in habits of, of being consistent and being in it um, all, all the time. So this next part is probably the, the s- simplest way. I took, like I said, this class. Imagine, imagine one of your favorite classes in college trying to sum it up in a 45-50 minute talk. Um, so what I'm, what I'm doing is try, I'm try, attempting to do that, but in terms of how do you interpret the Bible, how do you understand the Bible, I would put it in these three, three simple steps, observation, interpretation, application. It's kind of a, a process there. So I'm just going to walk through each of those. We're going to look at a few verses and, and learn this, this process. Um, but the first one is observation. And where did my marker go? How did it get there? All right, observation. What does it say? What does it say? There is an art. This is what you need to know about observation. There is an art to asking the right questions. So asking all kinds of questions to the text is where you wrestle with it. Approaching it like you've never read it before is really helpful, actually. Because this is what happens. A lot of times, if we've been raised in church, or if we've read the Bible enough, we might read a story or read something that we've read maybe ten times, and we'll just read it as if we know it, and we can miss things. So a great example of this, uh, I remember in college with Jim, and the, the assignment was read Colossians 2.22. I believe that's it. Someone double-check me. Colossians 2.22, I believe, says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay? So the assignment was, what does that interpret the literary context, what does that mean? And so I 
I, we were I was in a, in a class on Colossians, and so I thought I knew it, and I read that thing over and over and over, and literally all I did was I read that verse, and I just, I, I did this. I read the verse, and I went like this. What does that mean? That's, a, first of all, a terrible step, because I'm, where am I looking for the answer? Even though I'm looking up, where am I looking for the answer? No, I'm looking here. I'm looking in, I'm like looking inside me. I'm, t- I'm trying to figure out what this verse means. So I look up and I'm, oh, it's like, you know, the verse that talks about like, do not be conformed to the world. It's probably what that means. It probably means like, don't handle the world. Don't taste the world. Stay away from the world. The world's bad. So that was my answer. So Jim like calls me in. It's like, so um, did you see the, the quotations around the verse? And I'm like, what quotations? Oh. So if you look at that verse, there's quotations around that phrase. Essentially what Paul's doing is he's quoting the world. He's quoting a worldly statement. And he's saying, don't believe that. <laughs> I did the opposite. I quoted it as if it's something I should believe. And he's quoting it as if it's, that's, a, that's a worldly idea and it doesn't help. You can see what Paul says about it later. And, and simply because I, I read over it and I, I just missed that little bitty detail. It's, it's, it's in quotations. That's, that's kind of a big deal. Observation can really do that. can really help you see things that you read over and over and over. So you can't know what it says. And, sorry, you can't know what it means until you know what it says. Think about that. You can never know what's, what, what the Bible means until you know what it says. And that means you've got to slow down. You've got to read it. You gotta, and you've got to observe it. And, and, and so when I'm studying a text to teach a text, this is what Drew and, and Randy and Alec and all, Rachel, all of us do is, actually, I don't know if Rachel does, but she might. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe she does. Maybe she's been told to. I don't know. I'm still waiting. I'm digging a hole. <laughs> uh, um, if she doesn't do this, I failed as a, as a whatever. No. Um, is we print off the text in, in like double font and on, on a page, not, not reading it here, but on a page. And then we just start marking it up, like con- making connections and asking questions and trying to figure out, okay, uh, what's going on here? So asking questions, reading it as if you've never read it before. You can't know what it, what it means until you know what it says. So let's do this. Turn to John 4. I want you to think, like, you don't know anything about, you know Jesus is important. You know he... Uh, he does some things, but you don't know much else, okay? And then we come to John 4, 1 through 9. So I'm going to read it, and then you tell me, if you, were, if you wanted to teach this text and understand it, what kind of questions, okay? We're, we're, not, we're, not trying to, we're not talking about meaning yet. We're just asking questions. What questions should we be asking? When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, uh, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had, had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him for, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
So we don't have time to really spend as much time as I'd like on this, but what would, what's some questions right away that we go, if we want to understand this text, we've got to un- ask this question. Yeah? Why did Jesus um, change his, uh, relocate when he heard that the Pharisees heard he was making a baptized disciple? Okay, yeah. So maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's something in the previous text that could indicate his travel plans and, what, and how that could help us understand where he's going, why he's doing. Yeah? Why don't Jews talk to Samaritans? That's a big one. Why, why don't Jews talk to Samaritans? Okay, yep. Yep. Why did Jesus go through Samaria? Why did Jesus go through Samaria? Most Jews would go around. That's another thing you, probably, you don't know from this text, but that's what you would find out is most people d- never go through Samaria. They go all the way around. It's a long way around. They purposely go out of their way to not walk through Samaria. What is going on with Samaria? Why, why are they so you know, upset with or dissociated with or whatever. Any other questions? Jesus is right by the well. Why can't he get himself a drink? Okay. Why didn't Jesus get himself a drink? Okay. So what about, what does it mean to be a woman in the first century? Why was she there? Um, Does it say, did I read it or is it somewhere else? Does it, say, does it say noon? Okay, yep, sixth hour, yeah, which we, which we know is noon, which is the hottest part of the day. When everyone else, you don't know this, but you could ask the question, what's the deal with the sixth hour? What does that mean? Yeah, what even, you, that, even questions like, why does John think we need to know that? Yeah. Why does he, he usually doesn't tell us the time. Yeah. Why does he tell us the time? Yeah, why is he telling us the time? So, so like, when you realize, okay, so the author John is writing this and telling the story, he's He's telling specific details for a specific reason. It, it unlocks something in us to go, oh, okay, yeah, I should probably look into that. I should probably understand what that is and look, look, look into that. So that's observation, is asking the right questions, learning how to ask the right questions. There are some questions that are not helpful. Like there are some questions you're going to write down, you're going to spend all kinds of time, and you'll be like, that wasn't helpful at all. Um, but you just learn. That's why it's an art, because you learn how to ask better questions. All right, moving on. Interpretation, what does it mean? Gosh, we could spend so much time on this one. Um, these three things are, I think, probably the biggest, the biggest things, it's a terrible descriptive word, um, to help you understand meaning of a text. Genre is the first one. Genre, you, you know what genre is. Different genres of music, you know what that is. That wasn't, we didn't talk about that. Music wasn't as accessible when I was growing up, so I had no idea what the word genre was. I did not pay attention in school until I got to Ozark. That's when, that's when I cared about learning um, at, at age 20. So, but like different genres of, of literature matter because uh, the, the, you, you, you use different rules when you're reading different genres. You read a letter different than you read poetry, different than you read a grocery list, or, um, or history. Um, you, read, you read a story different than you read um, something that is, I don't know, like prophetic. So each possesses kind of its own rules of interpretation, and, and when you recognize what genre you're in, um, then it really can help you go, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm reading the Psalms. I'm not supposed to read this like it's factual or proverbs is not you know to be taken like this is guarantee if i do this i get this it's proverbial truth you know things like that 
So different genres in the Bible. Um, wisdom. Prediction, which would be prophetic. Prophet. Um, poetry. Narrative. Narrative would be like the history books in the, in the Old Testament. Gospels would be narrative. Acts would be narrative. Um, back to wisdom. Wisdom literature is, is Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And then there's, 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 each, there's some books that have multiple types of genres within the book, right? So there's, there's wisdom verses in other books, but those three are the big ones. Um, poetry, obviously, is Psalms, um, Song of Solomon. If you want to read a, a description of a beautiful woman, read um, Song of Solomon 7. And it's very poetic in its description. And, and there's a, there is a literal rendering of that online that you can see. When some, like a woman who has the neck like the tower of whatever and eyes like doves or I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting. And lots of other things that it describes. Um, epistle would be a letter. Epistle. New Testament letter. Uh, and then... Um, Apocalyptic would be, there's only, only one book that is apocalyptic, and it's, and it's its unique genre. Anybody know what that is? What book? What book is its own unique genre? It's at the very end. It starts with an R. Thank you. Um, uh, Revelation 1. Well, let me read Revelation 1, 9 and 10. Did I put 9 and 10? It's 12. No. Nope. It's 12 through 16. Do I have 12 through 16 on your sheet? Oh. My notes are off. All right, 12 through 16. I turned to see whose voice was that, uh, whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among lampstands was one that, like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest, the hair of his head was as white as wool, um, white as snow, and his eyes like, like fiery flame. His feet were like f uh, fine bronze, as it, fire, as, at it, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice is like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven st uh, stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword that came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. So obviously... Um, that's literal. Um, not really. But, so, Revelation is, is very unique in that it is this, this like, descriptive, apocalyptic, it's, it's, it's somewhat, it's referring to, like, there's like 300 and some OT references, most of them in the Old Testament prophets, and so, if you don't know the, don't know the prophets, you will miss so much of the imagery and the language that's happening in, in, in Revelation. But anyway, it's its own genre. Genre is a big one. Um, literary context. So context for the next two is a big deal. Context is king is oftentimes how we've talked about it um, when it comes to interpreting scripture. Um, and you guys understand this. I got to say this even though we don't have time. But I got to tell this because it's my only funny story. Um, my daughter Micah uh, just graduated. Sorry, Micah, she's here. Micah graduated and she posted um, her some grad photos, kind of like, you know, finish, finish the year, end of high school, great photos. My nephew took the photos. They're amazing. 
I'm reading the comments on her Instagram. I'm reading the comments, and she knows what this is. And um, one of the comments was from a, a, a boy, guy, <laughs> that said, top lot pimp leaving, and it had a crying emoji. <laughs> top lot pimp leaving, crying emoji. I said, do you know what a pimp is? And she said, do you know what a pimp is? I'm like, I know what a pimp is. Do you know? And so we had this little back and forth. Because <laughs> you guys understand things that I don't understand. You guys use language. You guys, you guys uh, like have these inside jokes about memes and, and certain language and the way you talk. I don't understand half of what's going on. Um, I did find out he did not mean it the way... I thought I understood that word. When I explained the word to her, she was a little mortified, I think. But, um, but that's not, I don't, I hope that's not, it's not at all what she meant. I'm like, that boy is calling my daughter a pimp. Yes, Drew. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> she might have to. Someone else might have to. Actually, this is fascinating. This is how language changes. How it's used is like a, um, a really important person. Like, top dog is leaving. So, if you don't know what the, the old version, the old definition of a pimp is, um, look it up, but don't Google it. Anyway. Okay, context matters. That's called, anytime, anytime, there's, anytime there's language or, or something that's going on where explanation isn't needing to happen, right? If Mike is with all her friends and they, they read that comment, they don't question it. They don't laugh at it. They just go, oh, whatever. It's because it's a high-context society. They don't need to explain what it is. They all know what it is, right? A low-context society is when you're in with multiple cultures and generations, and you have to explain all the things that you're doing. Um, and so context really does, is huge. And, and so much of the Bible is written to high-context societies where they didn't have to the author didn't have to explain what they meant because everybody knew what they meant. We don't understand what they mean. So we have to do some work to do that. So literary context, sentences, paragraphs, discourses um, that surround the text that we're studying. It consists of uh, sentences and paragraphs uh, before and after what you're doing. The, the, um, verses are not independent units of thought. That's what you need to kind of understand. This is, a, this is written in a... There's, a lot going on there, and you need to understand what's going on around it. Um, biblical passages is, express a writer's train of thought. There's a train of thought that's happening. So even if you're teaching or reading or studying a, a small section, there's, there's a train of thought that started at the beginning and it goes all the way to the end, and you can best understand the, that book if you understand the, the general thought. That's why anytime I... I'm going to study a, or study a text or teach a text. I want to read the whole book. I want to understand the whole from beginning to end. What's the purpose? What's going on here? So I can make, make sense of it as I go. Um, so, uh, Philippians 4.13. Turn there. This is, this is an oldie but a goodie. Um, but, you know, and I, listen, I don't want... I know... I want to say two things about this. One, this, this verse is really, really helpful t- for us to study um, literary context and go, wow, context really does 
matter and doesn't influence the way we understand verses, but also to say, um, don't make fun of people who misuse this verse because it's just dumb and um, not helpful. You, uh, oftentimes they're they're putting scripture because they trusting that's a sign of their trust in the Lord at some level. Anyway, Philippians four thirteen says, and I am able to do all things through Him who gives me strength. So this one can be used in a lot of ways and used out of context in a lot of ways and oftentimes with sports or with whatever, lifting or with doing impossible things or hard things. And so, but when you read the verses around it, um, what do you discover? So that's the question we're after. Let's look at, um, we'll just start with verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because... Once again, you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I, I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. There's the context. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I am able to do all things through him who gives me strength. Still, you do well by partnering with me in my hardship. So what's the context of that verse? What is he describing? Contentment. So I can I can I can handle being with or being without. I can I can be content with whatever God has for me. I can do this hard thing with him who gives me strength. So that's an example of literary context. There's a lots of them that we can uh, oftentimes use that they're out of context. And so it's really helpful. Anytime you're quoting a verse that you've heard a hundred people quote, look it up and read the verses around it and make sure it, it matches what you're, how you're using it. That's how, you, that's how you know. Historical context, which would be the culture, customs, language, beliefs, circumstances of the author and the audience. Um, biblical passages also re- reflect a way of life. I want you to picture um, the birth of our country or the start of our country or the 1700s. Okay? I don't know if you have a picture in mind of, of someone or a scene. or um, Now imagine, okay, that's what, 300 years ago-ish? Imagine being there. Would you stick out? Would you, would you fit in? I mean, you would know the language. You would... You would you know, you would be able to get by. But think how different that time is. Just just a few hundred years ago. Okay, now think a thousand years ago in um, South America. Think, you know, 1,500 years ago in North Africa with Augustine. Think 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, in Israel with Jesus. And, and each time you go, whoa, that's... That's a big jump. We call this, this the hermeneutical distance. The distance between us and them, our time and their time. The bigger it is, the, the harder it is right? to, to really re, recreate and, re, and capture. And so you need, we need a lot of resources to help us understand that. We need people who have studied that culture and, and all that. So the Bible comes to us secondhand. It comes to us from first century to us. And so it's our job to reconstruct the language, the culture, the lifestyle, 
of the original audience. And, and so looking at things like social customs and dining customs and roles of women in marriage and men and men and um, clothing and um, th things like religious customs, rituals, laws, and codes, things like architecture, housing, um, synagogue, temple, things like technology, weapons, and water source. And, and here's another good one. Turn to Revelation 3, 15 and 16. So, they didn't have water companies that just piped in water to cities. They had to build canals, you know, from water sources. And so, Laodicea happened to be in between these two cities. One was Colossae, which is the book Colossians was written to. It was a mountain city, and they, had, they were known for their mountain springs. And so, there was, there was tunnels dug, and there's, I mean, incredible technology to get water from that city down to Laodicea. And then there was this other city, Areopolis, that was known for its hot springs. And so they had the same thing, tunnel systems, water systems, to get the hot spring water to, to um, Laodicea. So when we read uh, Revelation 3, 15 and 16, it says... I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither, cold, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So we've heard that. Maybe some, if you grew up in church or whatever, if you've heard that phrase, lukewarm is this really terrible thing. And sometimes I've heard it taught like, yeah, God would rather either, us be either hot on fire for Him or cold against Him. He'd rather us love Him or hate Him. Why would Jesus want us to hate him? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because this is where a historical context can really help us understand that, wow, Laodicea was known for lukewarm water. They experienced it all the time. So if you're hot and you need something cold to refresh you, lukewarm water is kind of gross. If you need to cook or clean and you need hot water, lukewarm water just doesn't cut it. And so it doesn't serve a purpose. Hot water serves a purpose. Cold water serves a purpose. But lukewarm doesn't. And so Jesus is drawing on an experience, an analogy, or an experience, daily experience that they had to, to teach them a, a really important lesson. And it's different than how we've maybe heard it taught. So historical context can really help with that. Now last, um, application. How does it apply? Uh, someone, someone look up and read James, uh, James 1, 22 through 25. James 1, 22 through 25. Yeah. Okay, James 1, 22 through 25. Go for it. So there is a, an important emphasis in us being doers of the word, us 
reading the Bible and living it out. There, there's a challenge there. There's a, um, God is calling us to be people that not just read it and understand it, but live it out. And so the two things I want to talk about with application that I think are helpful is, is to recognize the difference between implications and significance. When it comes to applying the Bible, um, we have to do this work. So uh, I'm going to pass this out at the very end. But if you've been at the table any time, at the beginning of any year, we've passed this out. This is kind of our way. This is basically what I'm teaching on a card. And, and it talks about how we get to this point where we apply it. By, you know, first we understand the author's intended meaning, and then we want to understand like a timeless principle, a universal truth, all people at all time, and then we can now do, do the work to understand it. So because, because it, takes, it takes work to get there. You can't just read the Bible and what does it mean to me? We skip so much when we do that. Um, it doesn't help us. That's when we begin to make it say whatever we want it to say. We have to do the work to kind of get there. And so when we, when we go to apply it, it, there are implications. There are things, there are inferences uh, in the text that the author may or may not be aware of that, that legitimately fall under the meaning. An example would be, the Bible says, do not get drunk with wine, which, okay, which leads to debauchery. Um, but it doesn't say anything about doing drugs. It doesn't say anything about hard liquor, right? And so, but we go, okay, well, debauchery is this idea of like losing control of your faculties, I guess. Maybe, maybe I, I would assume anything that does that might apply, right? The, the implications are there. And so... Um, Applying the Bible, I think there's, there's some, you have to kind of discern what, what are the implications here? What's, how, is this, how does this apply to, 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 to us here now that I've done the work to understand what it means? How does this apply and how does that apply to our situation? What are the implications in my life? Next is significance. What are the specific and unique ways the reader, you and I, believe we should respond to this thing, to, to the meaning and the implications of this text? Um, the example I have is Matthew 18, or sorry, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is a great commission. Go and make, go and make disciples, you know, baptizing them. And so someone might read that and go, wow, I really need to ask my friend, you know, where they're at with Jesus. Someone might read that and go, wow, there's a whole country that has like less than 1% Christian and someone needs to go there, right? The implications are wildly different. <laughs> but that's where I talked about this book being spiritual and, and God's Spirit speaking and God speaking and us being in the Word to allow it to speak and to um, guide and to convict and to show us what God's wanting to say. This is where it requires some submission to Him, some surrender, some discernment, some time um, medica- meditating on the truth of Scripture. So, implications and signif- significance really do come to play in application. So now, take a few minutes to discuss uh, this, this last question, number two. How could the principles taught today help you understand the Bible? What specific things do you need to remember when you sit down to read the Bible? Let's talk about that for a few minutes, and then we'll come back together at the end.
Let me have your. Let me have you back here real quick. Uh, I promise we're almost done. I want to say this one last thing. I just want to again. It's just a just another encouragement to not give up because I know that this can be difficult sometimes is to dive into where do I start? Do I have to do I have to study the Bible that way every time? No. There's lots of ways to read the Bible. I read it. I don't whenever I read the Bible I don't study it. Sometimes I read it devotionally. Sometimes I just meditate on a verse. Sometimes it, I read it as a story so I can understand the bigger picture. Sometimes I am like just focusing on a few verses and I read those over and over and over. And so there's lots of ways to read and study the Bible. But when it comes to studying the the Bible, it's about training and not trying. Um, it's about training, not trying. It's, it's not, oh, I tried to study the Bible and I can't, so I gave up. It's like, no. I mean, if you're training for something and you, and you skip training one day, then you just train the next day, you know? You just, you just get up the next day and do it. And so being in the, being in the Word, um, you know, work, working on having a habit, establishing some sort of having a plan, you know, I think what hinders a lot of people from reading the Bible is they don't know what to do when they get to it. They're just going, I don't know. I guess I'll just read Amos. <laughs> I'll read about Amos. Who is Amos? And then they get, it's, that, that doesn't last very long because it just doesn't work. Oh, it just doesn't work. So having a plan, you know, I'm going to pick a book of the Bible and I'm going to read that or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to understand, you know, a certain part of the history or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on Psalms or, you know, having a plan can be really helpful, but if you want to talk about any of this, I know Drew or Randy or Rachel or any, any of us who, uh, that have studied for a while would love to talk about it. I have a couple resources that are great. This is like the big dog, Grasping God's Word. This teaches like everything I've taught in end depth. This one is a book on, um, a really great book on genres. It just, it just, each chapter is like about a different genre and understanding different genres. A little simpler, great book. Um, there's some great resources out there. If you want more, there's a lot more. So that is it. Go back to talking if you want or hanging out or coming to my house. What time are we heading over there? <laughs>